Hi, ma'am. Good evening. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here for uh, you know what we call ear to the ground. This is our in-house podcast where we uh, like to bring in accomplished uh, you know education and tech founders such as yours. Uh, uh, this is a part of our broader uh, weekend initiative, which is our newsletter where we share industry insights, what's happening uh, in the ecosystem, transactions, um, what we're hearing from investors. And with the broader tech community, anybody who's, in, who's interested in education, uh, it also gets shared with a lot of investors who are actively looking at the education space. Uh, for our audience today, uh, who we have uh, is uh, Mayank, who's the CEO, founder of uh, Upgrad. He's worked in the education space uh, even before founding Upgrad, where he was advising at uh, education clients at Parthenon, as well as looking edu at education investments uh, in Bortlesman. Uh, Mayank is an alumnus of IIT Delhi and ISP. Uh, so uh, great, Mayank. Uh, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Uh, uh, I think uh, what you're doing at Abgarad is revolutionary, truly. Uh, and I followed that journey uh, uh, more because it also aligns with my personal thesis around the industry you know, of lifelong learning. And also India as an economy is going through a lot of structural challenges. We aren't able to put in the number of people that uh, to college. And even when they do make it into the higher education ecosystem, the quality leaves a lot to be desired for. Uh, so I think I want to just sort of get in some insights about the industry uh, through the next 25, 30 minutes that we have with you. Sure. Um, um, I think when, when we get started, you know, what was the inspiration for you behind starting Upgrad? Like, how did that come about? Well, I think for me, um, as, as you mentioned, Parler, uh, I've been in the education space earlier as an investor and then also as an advisor. Uh, so over a period of time, I've had the... Uh, opportunity and the uh, sort of benefit of seeing education companies from close quarters, uh, either working with companies uh, or funds looking at investing into these, in these uh, higher or education companies, or even for investment purposes, looking at companies from the other side of the table and then seeing uh, how sort of things are changing. But I think in the entire process, well, there were perhaps two, three things that I would say that drove me to coming up with Upgrad and why Upgrad came into existence. I think number one was uh, what was happening about, let's say, five, six years ago. I felt that the way people were looking at online education was a very shallow approach to looking at online education. So I think a lot was seen as making content accessible, uh, while in education, um, get, making content accessible is what a job of a library is. I can get access to the best books, uh, but none of us went to our universities for the library in fact. And it's a much more sort of end-to-end -end experience. So I felt that at the point in time when uh, around 2014-15 when I was contemplating about the idea, uh, at least I was very clear that, look, uh, I don't want to be a content access platform, which is what a lot of books platform are doing. If you wanted a Stanford content or a Harvard content, you can log on and check out the content. But education is much more wholesome and holistic. And that's where uh, our take was that, look, there's an opportunity there that people are looking at the problem in a very wrong way. That was partly the thought process of <clears throat> looking at Upgrad. And partly, I think uh, for me, uh, yes, there was K through 12, there was higher ed, but higher ed I was much more passionate about. And um, I think in one of my, uh, and I mentioned this earlier also in one of my um, sort of looking at companies, uh, we have traveled to a, a university and institution in Greater Noida an engineering college. And when you went there, I, I entered the college. I asked the guard what's happening inside. The guard was clueless. Uh, and he said, I don't know what is happening inside. 
Uh, so he let me in. Mm. And when I went inside, uh, the building was pretty much empty. And on the third or the second floor of the building, there were four kids doing their BTEC in one of the circuit engineering department. I think electrical or electronics uh, engineering out there. So I asked them, what are you guys doing here? So he said, Sir, Patani, people come in and people go out. Uh, and uh, faculty sometimes come, they don't come. But I mean, we have been sent here by parents to do my BTEC. And, and Greater Noida, you know, is like a street full of engineering colleges, et cetera, that's, that, that's out there. And I laughed at that point in time. I said, look, now the guard does not know uh, and, the, and the kids don't know. And I look at those kids and they look pretty much coming from middle class backgrounds or sort of uh, rural background, came from Chhattisgarh, Bihar uh, uh, um, and Bengal uh, region, uh, came to uh, Delhi to study and, and get their sort of engineering education done. And that's the time, man, it's sort of, uh, while I was laughing on one side, it also dawned on me that, look, uh, do I have the right to laugh? Uh, and personally, I come from a highly subsidized form of education. My uh, schooling was paid by the uh, by the government of India in, in, in subsidies through Kendra Vidya. That's where I did my school education. My higher education was funded by the government again at IIT Delhi. So, uh, coming from a background of highly subsidized but high quality education uh, uh, and having seen the education business from close quarters, I just felt that, look, I don't have the privilege and the luxury of commenting and critiquing about the education system. I need you to do something about it. So I think partly looking at education sector, seeing that there was a gap in which they were solving for the problem and this penny dropping moment where you realize that, look, if things are so bad, either you do something about it or you stop complaining. And I think stopping to complain was not an option. So. That's where the journey of Hubble started. Yeah. I think um, the other thing that, uh, that, that, that takes me to uh, Mayank is the fact that even before, I think obviously COVID has accelerated a lot of thought around edtech and the use of technology to deliver education. Uh, but a lot was being spoken about the higher ed system even prior to that, right? About uh, degrees becoming irrelevant. And uh, so what are some of the challenges, uh, some of the trends that you are seeing in the higher ed space specifically? And how are, uh, you know, companies such as yours or Upgrad placed to, you know, disrupt this market? No, I think specifically the higher ed, there are two, three things that you will see at a macro level. Uh, I think the first one is, which we don't appreciate as much, uh, but it's, it's quite common. And I asked this question, Payal, and maybe I'll ask you also that uh, if you look at, um, and if you have to give me a number, which is your total number of years of experience divided by the number of jobs that you are in. Mm -hmm. So what would that number be for you, Payal, uh, at this point in time? Total number of years of experience divided by uh, 1.5. 1.5. And let's say your friends, family, you can think about your brother, cousin, elder, sister, mostly would be in the zone of 1, 2, to 3, or 4. Uh, uh, but if you do the same thought, the numbers experiment for your parents' generation, uh, yeah. Everyone will be either 35 is to one or 30 is to one or 15 is to one or 18 is to one, right? Um, and I think that's one thing that we don't appreciate as much that we are now in a generation where one job for the career is no longer the scenario. Uh, and if that is not the scenario, then lifelong learning is becoming more and more um, uh, the need of the art than just um, uh, the fact that, that look, you, you, you can't afford to have a system where you got educated at the degree system and then you're done with it. Because every time that you're changing job, uh, your parents did not have to change jobs. Uh, they were in one job and they were done for life. 
but you have to continue to change or move from one field to another. Every time that you do that shift, um, your skills get redundant and you need newer skills to move up and to sort of go up in your journey. That phenomena is a, is a much more macro phenomenon. And I, and I seen that, look, while in, in one generation, we move from 30 is to one to three is to one or four is to one. Um, and in a lifetime, you will do six, seven jobs. And if you go a generation back, jobs used to get passed on from one generation to another. Yep. And your surname used to define what job you will do. Uh, and therefore your vocation was get educated at home. Uh, if you come from a lawyer's family, you will do law. If you come from a doctor's family, you will do doctory, um, so on and so forth. So I think in the environment today, higher ed is going through that macro change as aspect A. Aspect B, uh, Pyle, is that I think uh, it had happened, but it's happening a lot more that people are now realizing that online education in higher ed was not about content and making cool and engaging content, um, but it is a lot about engagement, NPS, and completion. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this happened as phase two of uh, online education revolution where people started moving from content access to engagements and completion. And that took us to where we are today. And if I come to my third point, which is where the biggest innovation is happening right now is around the fact that people are moving in higher education from engagement and completion to outcomes. So I think a lot of focus is shifting towards jobs, outcomes, what's the benefit, what's the ROI, what am I doing this program for? Uh, and that's the phase of journey that we are seeing. So at a macro level, yes, there is this skill evolving and skill changing and lifelong learning becoming more and more sort of rigorous and relevant. Um, uh, the number two was that people are moving from content access to engagements and completion. But the phase three, uh, which is what I call it as the, the current phase of higher ed, which is where people are moving more and more towards outcomes and giving out ROI to individual learners. So absolutely. I think not just in higher ed, right? I think we've seen that change happen uh, even in, let's say, test prep, um, uh, you know, where uh, probably tech companies are moving from, uh, you know, minutes spent, engagement metrics, to more of uh, outcomes-driven metrics. Yep. So, yep. Uh, so I think uh, that that kind of makes sense. Uh, I think the other thing, uh, while staying at the macro environment, any thoughts on how the regulatory landscape is evolving and how that impacts, uh, you know, upgrad in particular? So you know, we heard about uh, let's say the top hundred universities being allowed to give online degrees because initially, way back, if you go a couple of decades back, there was this. Um, challenge when the government had clamped down on this uh, on the on the distance learning phase but now uh, i think the flavor of the season is changing so uh, how has that evolved and any specific uh, expectations either from the budget or from the regulation that you think will give a further push to this ecosystem so i think two points there, Pyle. i think one is intention wise it's quite positive uh, execution wise it's not as fast as as we would have liked it to be so i think last year i think around budget time uh, the finance minister announced that 100 universities, top 100 will be offered to offer online degrees. Um, can you name me five right now out of the 100? Uh, and they haven't. Um, and I think that's where the challenge ends up coming that look, there is right intention, uh, but on the ground execution is missing. And there are two, three reasons why it ends up happening because while the regulations have come out, um, uh, there is no uh, stronger push on getting that regulations off the ground. So what happens in a regu highly regulated environment, universities are very much cautious of taking the step and launching online programs 
because I think leave aside private universities, which are far more proactive and will sort of take those steps. Government universities are led by vice chancellors and, uh, and deans mm-hmm. who change on their posts regularly. So they don't want to take an action which sets them in a manner of speaking that look, it's very, very innovative and it's new. So therefore, uh, the only university that you will see finding online degrees sort of approvals are private universities who have taken upon themselves to take that up. So I think number one on execution front, it's been quite slow. Number two, uh, even if there is execution push, uh, the clarification of the regulations is not of the same to the same clarity as what anyone would have liked it to be. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of universities are taking it a bit slow uh, of actually jumping to the bandwagon of saying online degrees and online education, I need to sort of move to this. Uh, lastly, uh, Pal, I would mention that uh, while these two have been a challenge, uh, um, some universities have moved. But if, let's say, the, the big reason why a lot of universities have not moved is on account of lack of resources or lack of know-how and technical know-how. So a lot of universities still don't have the right level of technical know-how of A, launching a new program, building the right content. Even if they have the technology platform from the government, how do you manage the entire program dynamic? That requires a very different DNA altogether. How do you train people on, on online delivery is not there right now. So I think those are the challenges that we have seen. Um, there is slow execution, uh, not enough clarity. And if there's clarity, there's lack of know-how and technical capability. And that's where I think the innovative approach that government can end up taking and potentially if they promote it, it's sort of best for the ecosystem. And there are multiple ed tech firms such as ours mm-hmm. who are doing multiple things with universities. Uh, uh, and if government can encourage more and more public-private partnership and university-institution partnership, edtech partnership, I mean, there's ways in which we can part- collaborate with universities and offer and take them to scale much more faster uh, while maintaining the quality. So I think that's those are the ways in which if edtech ecosystem can collaborate with universities, you can have much more meaningful outcome coming out. Uh, but I think that's part and parcel of uh, a new shift that happens in regulatory ecosystem, which takes its own due course of time. Absolutely. Uh, no, that makes sense. I think uh, the other, uh, right, if you, when you look at the higher ed ecosystem, uh, how do you segment that market? Or, um, you know, uh, one way obviously uh, is to do it uh, by, let's say, tier one city, tier two, tier three, so different uh, consumer mindset uh, with different expectations, different outcome expectations uh, as well, right? So, um, you know, somebody who's working in a corporate MNC job might, might look at doing another degree as an addition uh, as a lifelong learning piece that we spoke about, or uh, a second person could be interested in that could be his first degree, uh, could be interested in more outcomes driven, like, can I get placed, uh, you know, uh, after this? So how do you typically segment this market? So I, I mean, there are multiple ways in which you can cut and slice and dice the market. I think the first very simple way of looking at the market is on two spectrum. Uh, you have formal degrees, uh, so the BA, BCom, BSc, MCom, MSc, etc. Where an online ecosystem, an edtech ecosystem can come in and sort of take the formal degree out. And then you have the lifelong learning play, which is where you target the working professionals who are looking at sort of higher credential degrees or higher credential programs. Now, on this two by two thing, there are maybe two sort of metrics that you can create on the other axis. One is what I may call as just in time learning or supplemental learning. So there's a lot of short form programs, 300 rupees, 500 rupees, 1000 rupees, 10,000 rupees modules that are available for you to quickly pick up a program and, and pick up a skill. 
Uh, so you have multiple global platforms, Indian platforms are offering these uh, short priced certification modules. Uh, I call them just-in-time learning more so because they have large content libraries and you know when you visit, when you used to visit libraries in your college a day before the examination or a day before the submission because you needed a quick just-in-time learning to be done. And then you have these long-term learning modules uh, such as ours where we come in and we say, okay, look, I mean, I can't do anything in three hours. But give me six months to one year, I'll help you shape your career. So I think in these two aspects, the kind of outcome that you need to provide is very different. On the first one, which is a just-in-time short-form learning module, it's a quality of content. Uh, it's a breadth of content that matters a lot more for success. Uh, completion of the content, those are the elements that matters a lot. Uh, uh, while on the second one, um, it's it goes content breadth and content quality matters, but not to that extent as much as what matters is completion and outcomes. Right. So that's where the, the, the fundamental sort of dynamic shift between these two segments. And then those are the two different segments with different kind of sort of outcome presence out there right now. Okay. Uh, I think I want to I want to go back to your original thought, uh, Mayankam where you said that, you know, uh, the idea is not to become a content library. And you say some, uh, uh, you know, some burnout, at least on the K-12 side, because everyone's been pushed online, uh, some burnout that's happening uh, uh, with parents or even students, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there is a certain level of engagement or there's some, there has to be something else that needs to be delivered. Although the K-12 market is slightly different from the higher ed market because mostly of the age profile. But uh, how do you, or what are some of the creative ways that you at Upgrad, or you know, how would you like to solve some of these engagement problems so that you know it's not just a video, or let's say even if it's a live session, there there is enough engagement. Because when you go to and you know when you were at IIT perhaps right, or at ISD for that matter, uh, you know there's this entire campus. There's a lot of teamwork that happens, and most of I mean I don't know, I, I'm sure you would agree. Most of my learning at my MBA happened outside of the classroom. Right yeah. outside of the formal uh, lecture delivery that happens. Uh, so how how does one go about replicating some of these things in an online world? Yeah, no, I think um, um, when you're looking at uh, this ecosystem out there, I think um, part of the challenge, as you said, that look, people sometimes think it's about just making content accessible, and if you just put a Zoom link and people start talking and viewing, um, things would end up happening. Um, but in reality, that's not how sort of the ecosystem sort of operates. Now, what you need to do uh, in that scenario pile is that you need to understand what actually comprises education and then try to take a piecemeal approach of breaking it down. Um, and I'll give you some, some simple examples. Sometimes when people say that, look, I'll put across content and great learning will happen. Uh, I'll give you a running sort of uh, a simple example. I mean, I don't know if you, do you, have you ever binge watch a series, anything that you've recently watched on Netflix? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, less likely that you will binge watch Python 101 or Digital Marketing 101 or Economics 101. You will not get up in the morning and say, yeah, Pura, I just stayed up the full line and I finished the full economics chapter, uh, um, even if it is by Raghuram Rajan for that matter. Okay. The reason for that is that education requires a fair amount of cognitive load. Okay. If you're watching uh, uh, a movie, you can leave your brains aside and still watch a movie because there's no cognitive load that is required in that ecosystem. Um, if you're watching documentaries, there's slightly larger cognitive load required. So you do take a little bit more effort to watch a documentary. But the moment you come to education, it's a full 100% jump in cognitive load. And therefore, one cannot binge watch uh, these programs. 
uh, and thus that thing that differentiates online learning and content library to education is a human touch and human touch is one of the critical part to what you mentioned about your mba experience etc it's the human touch that defined your uh, journey it was not necessarily i mean the lectures played a very important role you could have learned exactly what you learned in the campus by buying kotler um, uh, finance book and one more book from marketing and hr uh, 1800 rupees you would have gotten entire knowledge of your education uh, and if you wanted to spend lesser you could have gone to youtube and you could have gotten all the best case studies to go through your mba program but as i said education is a high on cognitive load and it is like eating vegetables till your mother slaps you to eat them you never want to eat it on your own and that piece is where education has to be very strongly led by human touch and technology has to enable it so at updrat for example every learner has a dedicated student mentor and uh, the mentor's goal is to ensure that you are completing it and when when you are slacking behind uh, you will get a call saying hey pal you paid 2 lakh rupees for the program you could have really bought yourself a nice vacation uh, why are you wasting your time just buckle up and get on the program right now Uh, we have a pool of industry coaches, which is equivalent uh, to uh, industry mentors who will come and you can chat with them. It's an Uberized pool of industry coaches and industry experts that you can have a conversation about. Okay, look at my CV. Can you help me with this thing? I'm looking for a job in in agriculture sector. Uh, can you support me in some of the connections that you want to sort of get out of there? Uh, then we have an Uberized pool of graders and teaching associates who will give you personalized feedback. Uh, and we have an organized pool of uh, career coaches who will help you figure out what you need to do in careers. So I think there's a lot of elements that a university offers, which are human touch. There's faculty members, there's teaching associates, there is alumni, there is uh, industry experts for guest lecture, etc. What we have done at Upgrade is we have taken all these elements, Uberized it, and bring brought on a very strong set of uh, 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 learning intervention in the program where content. Access file comprises not more than twenty percent of our learning experience. Right. The remaining eighty percent is the human touch, where we can slap them, we can shout at them, because look, I mean, education is not easy. It requires a lot of rigor at the end of the day. No, absolutely. I think um, I, I, that's a challenge. Probably not. Uh, uh, probably something sometimes applies to me as well, right? You have so much content that's uh, that's out there on course that are high quality content from let's say the best universities. But the kind of discipline that it requires is just uh, sometimes you find it lacking to you know. Rigorously go through it, and that's and we see that in completion rates across the across courses. Yeah, I think one of the things that we don't realize is that online education is more a business of bringing in discipline mm-hmm. than a business of bringing in content. So, in the pursuit of bringing in content, uh, we end up missing out on bringing in discipline. If you can bring in this, see uh, why offline education work, and what are the inherent advantages of offline education? Is that look, I mean, if I put you in a four wall Classroom, where the hell will you go if I'm teaching you? Even if it's a boring lecture, you will listen to me. If I'm looking into your eyes, you will nod back. Uh, if I'm sort of asking a question, you will respond. In the online context, a lot of these things get disappear because I can run out of this room immediately, and you will not even get to know. I've been doing a lot of work on Facebook, Google, out here on 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 the on on the side, but you will not get to know. So I think that piece of controlling that experience that we can build a blinkered time between you and the laptop. Yeah. Is what online education is about. Unfortunately, we don't look at online education from that angle. We look at online education as great content and great engagement. But this is about actually online discipline at the end of the day. Yeah, makes sense. 
I think um great uh, thank you Mayank I think this has been a great conversation um some uh, some brilliant insights that you've been able to share any parting thoughts for some of the uh, you know some of the more early stage entrepreneurs or um, uh, or or the audience in general no i think we are all early stage right now i think the ecosystem <laughs> is the early stage but i would say i think there is um, uh, i mean india has a large opportunity and large sort of uh, ecosystem what we lack at this point in time is our great products and great business models so anyone who is focusing at the end of the day please 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 focus on building great products that can deliver outcomes if you are building those products then invest aggressively on sort of strong sales and marketing um, 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 and therefore be very careful about are you building a great sales and marketing organization or are you building a great education organization and that distinction if you keep it in mind in the long run you will always make decisions which are right for the learner's journey uh, uh, then just write for the business model because i think business model will sustain itself for 3 to 5 years but then it's a word of mouth that matters the most in education so focus on that more than anything else great yeah, great thank you thank you thank you mayank